Well, we'll bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our day. We thank you for being a God of grace and mercy, but also a God who redeems us from our enemies, who's powerful to save, who's a great warrior. We pray, Heavenly Father, as we look at these battles that happen at the end, as you come to save your saints and judge your enemies, that you would give us confidence in you, that you would give us the ability to forsake sin until the day you come for us, and you'd remind us that our home isn't here, at least now, that we have an eternal kingdom to look forward to. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this morning, I want to remind you where we left off. Last time we were in the book of Revelation, we left off with the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we went through the imagery regarding the marriage supper of the Lamb. We said that there is indeed a bridegroom who is Jesus. We have a bride, which is the church. And we also have a great wedding feast that's coming, which is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I believe that occurs when Jesus Christ comes through the clouds at the end of the 70th week. He judges his enemies, and the birds of the air will feast upon his enemies while you and I are feasting with the Lord. And so this feast is going to occur prior to the thousand-year millennial kingdom that Jesus Christ is going to reign over. So we look at the various imageries, and we talked about how Indeed, there was so much language in the New Testament where you had allusions to weddings. For example, the bride price. Remember the mohair, the bride price would be set by the, it would be the um, father of the bride. And we said that that bride price was in fact Jesus Christ's life when he purchased his bride. We looked at all of that imagery and so that's where we left off. Now, one of the reasons I had Matthew twenty six twenty nine up, if you recall, is we saw Jesus say to his church that he would not drink from the fruit of the vine until he drank it anew with us in the kingdom. And so that should tell you also how precious this coming marriage supper of the Lamb really is. Jesus forsook wine, even remember it was handed to him while he was on the way to the cross. And is he suffering? But he rejected it. Why? Well, because he came to take upon himself the full measure of God's wrath, but also because he was, I think, being faithful to this promise. So that's how significant the marriage supper of the Lamb is. Now, we're going to talk more about that as we continue. And I want you to see that everyone who is invited to this great messianic banquet, who is a believer in Jesus Christ, they're the only ones who are going to be invited. They're blessed. And those who are blessed... Even if you feel cursed, even if you feel awful, if you're invited to this wedding, this marriage supper of the Lamb, you really are blessed. So our blessed state occurs whether we feel it or not. It's true whether we have a bad day or a good day. It's true because we're in Christ. And if you're in Christ, you have everlasting life, you have forgiveness of sins, and you have a partaking in the great marriage supper of the Lamb. So that's here John's point as he continues on in Revelation 19, verses 8 through 9. He says, It was given to her, that would be her as the church, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Now, dear ones, notice up in red, It says it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen. And notice he explains what the fine linen is. It's the righteous acts of the saints. Now, what I want to do is tie together the imputed righteousness of Christ that you and I are clothed in 
the moment you trusted in Jesus. And I want to tie that to the righteous acts of the saints. But before I do that, I want you to realize as we read that sentence, notice it says it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen. That's a divine passive. It's an aorist active, it's an aorist passive indicative of didomi, meaning to give. So this is God giving the church the ability to clothe herself in white linen, which is the righteous deeds of the saints. Okay, so I want you to think that any righteous acts that you and I accomplish, and we do as believers in Jesus Christ, it is depicted here as an act of God. So God is the one who gives us the ability. So no one is pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps apart from Christ and the power of the Spirit in performing acts that are righteous before God. This is an act of God. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 22, 11 through 12. And as you're turning to Matthew 22, 11 through 12, remember, this is the passage where Jesus is talking about this wedding metaphor. And he talks about a man who is caught without his wedding clothes on. And the reason I want to talk about this passage is sometimes the wedding clothes analogy has to do with having the imputed righteousness of Christ. In Revelation 19, as we look at the church being given the right to clothe herself in fine linen, that also really has to do with the imputed righteousness of Christ, which leads to good works. Okay, so because you and I have justification, we are forgiven from the penalty of sin, but we're also freed from the power of sin. Okay, and that's one of the themes that we saw even in the book of Romans. And so they're both tied together. So let's look at Matthew twenty-two, eleven through 12. Here we have this wedding metaphor that Jesus is using. He says, but when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. Verse 12, it says, and he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. So notice here we have the king who comes, which is a reference to whom? It's God. God comes to this man and says, well, how did you get into this wedding banquet? This is Christ. And he's looking at this man who has no wedding clothes. And the idea is he is not fit to be at the banquet. He doesn't belong. So here I think clearly the wedding clothes really is a metaphor for having the imputed righteousness of Christ. Okay, so the moment you trusted in Jesus Christ... Remember, you were given his righteousness that you were clothed upon, and he took your sin debt away. And you might say that is akin to having your wedding clothes on. So if you don't have your wedding clothes on through faith alone and Christ alone, you're not fit to be at the banquet. Okay? But now, as I talk about the wedding clothes in that way, I'm talking about justification. I'm talking about being right with God. But notice here in the text, Revelation 19 and verse 8, It says that the fine linen that God gave the right to the church to clothe herself in is the righteous deeds of the saints. Well, remember, it's only those of us who have been justified who can do the righteous deeds of the saints. Because the moment you trusted in Jesus Christ, not only were you given his righteousness, but you're also filled by the Spirit who finally enables you to do that which is pleasing to God. Do you remember in Romans 8.8, it says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God? Those who are in the flesh, meaning outside of Christ, they can't do what we see here in Revelation 19.8. It was not given to them by God to dress themselves in fine linen, which are the righteous acts of the saints. They don't have the ability to do so. 
but we do. Think of a great passage. This is a passage I hope every family memorizes with their kids. It's Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And the reason I love Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is because it ties three great doctrines together. It ties salvation by faith alone. It ties the doctrine of election because even our faith is a gift of God. So it shows us grace, but it also shows us the relationship between faith and works. Let's recite it. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then remember in verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship, that's God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus in his sphere for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should what? We should walk in them. Now remember that walking in them is the, it's the way that the Hebrews would say you have to live it out. So notice we're saved by faith alone, all by God's grace alone, but it is for the purpose of doing the good works. It is for the purpose of being clothed in the righteous acts of the saints. So that's the relationship of having your wedding clothes on, which gives you the compatibility of being with God. In other words, you have his imputed righteousness. You have his forgiveness. And it shows you the relationship between that and the righteous acts of the saints. It's not either or, it's both and. Does that make sense? Okay, um, any questions on that? Yeah, yeah, Paul. Just a quick aside. So a false teacher would have fake wedding clothes on? Yeah, I would say, or um, maybe a better way of saying they don't have wedding clothes on at all would be kind of the, in keeping with the analogy that Jesus is using. So, yeah, any unbeliever, which a false teacher certainly would be, would be one who does not have a wedding clothes, meaning they have a different Christ And because they have a different Christ, a different spirit, a different gospel, remember Paul warned about that? Well, therefore, they don't have justification, they don't have their wedding clothes on, and they're not fit to be at the banquet. And therefore, they won't do the righteous acts of the saints either, because they won't be filled by the spirit. Exactly right. Yep. Yeah, Scott. Just a note that uh, it seems to me I remember that uh, the, the host of the wedding banquet would provide the wedding clothes for the guests. Yeah, well said. Exactly. Very good point. Yeah, and that ties into our understanding of how the Hebrews would run their uh, the, the wedding. Exactly right. Thank you for that comment, Scott. Yeah, Peter. Eric, quick question. Also, you know, when you go back to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, yeah. isn't there an order of precedence? In other words, grace, faith, works. It's not the reverse order. Yeah, exactly right. So it's when it says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And remember it says, and that not of yourselves. Notice the that. The that is a demonstrative pronoun. It's neuter. And so the demonstrative pronoun refers to an antecedent. It's referring to something that preceded it, correct? Well, the question that we have to answer as good theologians is, is it referring back to the faith or the grace? Which is that which is... Remember, because it says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Well, what isn't of ourselves? Is it the grace or the faith? And the answer is yes. (laughs) Because both grace and faith are in the feminine. So in other words, if you had the demonstrative pronoun that, if it was referring to one or the other, it would be probably feminine, the demonstrative pronoun, but it's not. So they they have to have agreement. So the demonstrative pronoun is neuter. Why is it neuter? Because it's referring to the entire concept of salvation by faith through grace. So exactly right. The faith by, or salvation by grace through faith 
is all of that which is given to us by God. But to me, Peter, the accent is that faith is what is given by God. Now, here's why. Does everyone know what a tautology is? A tautology is something in logic where, um, let me give you an example. If my son says, why does the sky look blue? And I say to him, it looks blue because it's blue. Well, I've added nothing to the argument. It's just I'm just restating. So a tautology adds nothing to the, it's a, it's, you're asserting what you already have stated. You're not answering anything. Well, by definition, grace is from God. It's a gift. So when it says that not of yourselves is a gift of God, the emphasis certainly is on faith because by definition, grace is from God. So the emphasis in that whole thing, when it says that not of yourselves, it's faith. And therefore, anyone who says, well, you know, I had faith and my neighbor didn't. And therefore, the reason why I am right with God is because I was smart enough to have faith and they weren't smart enough to have faith. Now, don't get me wrong. Faith is what divides us. Those who have faith in Christ are saved and those who don't are not saved. But the issue is, why did I have faith and why didn't they have faith? Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 is saying, it's because God gave it to me and not them or to you and not the unregenerate. That's the idea. Yep. Does that help, Peter? A uh, little bit, but okay. I wanted to dial back to works. Okay. Um, yeah, you, okay. You don't, come, you don't come to it through works. Yep. Uh, faith isn't a decision, and works comes about as an act of the Holy Spirit through exactly. grace and faith, right? Exactly There's got to right. be an order. Exactly. So in that order, in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, you have the salvation by faith alone, which is itself a gift, completely by God's grace. And then you're right, in verse 10, then we have the works. And so that's one passage I've actually used with Roman Catholics to say, look, we believe in doing good works, but it doesn't save you. What saves us is our salvation by faith alone. A good analogy is the car engine. Think of our salvation as being like a vehicle. Think of that analogy. Okay, our salvation is a vehicle. Well, what drives our vehicle? The engine. Okay, well, the engine of our salvation is faith. But if you have faith in an operating engine, what does an operating engine produce if it's running? Exhaust. Our works are like exhaust. So does the exhaust actually propel the vehicle? No. But if you have no exhaust, it's an indication your engine isn't functioning. You don't have saving faith. Okay? So exhaust doesn't save you. The engine does. But if you don't have... If you don't have an engine that's operating, you have no exhaust. That's one way of thinking of it. So exhaust is the works. The saving faith is the engine, right? If your engine is on, you must necessarily produce what? Exhaust. If you have no exhaust, you've got a a non-functioning engine. You don't have faith. I think that that's the way to look at it. Yeah, Eric. Or Eric, the other Eric. Oh, Oh, yeah. I was just going to, thankfully, God, he's kind of teaching me the same kind of things this week. I I was looking at... um, this passage here, it says that is why it depends, is in Romans 4.16, that is why it depends on faith in order the pro, that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. And I thought yes. if it depends on faith, uh, then why does it rest on grace? Because I, I was thinking of faith a little bit backwards, like it's something I derive. But I was thinking, you know, Abraham on the way to, um, God told him to go to the promised land, and I think it was on the way there that he, he was worried about 
someone killing him, so he told him, you know, oh, this is my sister, you know, tell him. Yeah. You're my. And yep. I was thinking, well, that's kind of a weak faith, but then he <laughs> keeps learning um, more. It's like God, God's grace is on Abraham so that he keeps blessing him, even though Abraham keeps failing and God keeps exactly. revealing himself. So it's really God's continuous grace that, that Abraham has faith. Well said. Eric, that's well said. Exactly right. So the power and the reason Abraham is saved isn't ultimately his own. In fact, it has nothing to do with him. It's, it's God alone. It's his power. You're exactly right. After all, look at all the people who lived in Chaldea. Why is Abraham chosen? Why does God speak to him and not anyone else? Well, because he's chosen. And so why does God intervene in his life differently than he does others? Why does he graciously work? So yes, it's all the work of God. And yeah, in that promise that you see that it's by faith through grace shows that, remember, Abraham is justified for 400 years prior to the giving of the law. So that's one of the big arguments that Paul makes is that if you're justified, Abraham was justified by faith, well, the law that comes 400 years later obviously can't nullify a promise that God had already given by faith. And so that's exactly right. So that's why salvation has always been by faith. That's the precedent that was set by Abraham himself. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, Julie. Yeah, it sorry, seems, it seems like when you follow the logical pro- progression of it, you know, that um, we are as workmanship created for good works that God has prepared that we should walk in them. So yeah. those good works are not making us saved, but God has prepared them when we have faith that we can walk in them. So exactly. It seems logical that way. Absolutely. So we're saved by faith alone, by God's grace alone. Even that's, a, it's a gift, all of it. And then, but we we're created for the purpose of doing good works. Absolutely. And those good works were prepared beforehand. So you can even see the doctrine of election there in verse 10. It wasn't that you and I started doing good works that we decided upon. These are good works that God had pre, preordained for us before the foundation of the world. Just as in Ephesians 1, 4, we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. We were also chosen for those good works. For the, so all the good works that you're all doing, and I see what you're doing, and the, the other elders do as well, and all of the teachers that we have here. What's interesting to see all the good works that you're doing, God has foreordained them. Isn't that beautiful? So it's something that God had chosen that you would be about before the foundation of the world. Amen. So anybody else on that? Thanks, for Peter, for asking. That was a great question. Yeah, Christy. It's just more of a comment. Um, having been in a church that was a social gospel church, emergent yeah. church, the um, interesting thing was we were doing these good works and we were being told not to share the gospel. We were not to tell about Christ Jesus. So we were just to show. And, wow. and we were like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, bring these Christmas baskets to these people, but don't say Merry Christmas. Not that that's the gospel, but, but right. it was really, really apparent in that, that they did not, they weren't doing the works of God. Yeah. <laughs> they were doing, you know, the works of man. Wow. Very profound. So think of that passage in 2 Corinthians 11, Peter, where Paul warns that they would receive a different spirit, a different Christ, and a different gospel than the one that he had preached well, that can't save them. And so the emerging church, which is what you're really referring to, their gospel, remember, gospel means good news. Our good news is that we're saved from the wrath of God. To them, they don't believe the wrath of God is real. In fact, Bob and I just did radio about this this past week. To them, they are panentheists. They believe that God is in the world, I mean, literally in it, 
and that he's drawing the world into himself at the end of time so that all of the world would be wrapped into God. There'll be no distinction between the creator and the creation. And therefore, there's going to be no judgment because God would be judging himself. Therefore, if there's no judgment, there's no wrath to be saved from. If there's no wrath to be saved from, what's the good news? Well, the good news isn't being saved from the wrath of God through the blood atonement. The good news is that you and I can just do what we do in our daily lives and it will all work out in the end. And so don't offend them by bringing the Christmas basket and talking about Jesus Christ. That's just offensive to the emerging church. Don't talk about the blood atonement. You don't need that. So what Christie's describing is, yes, they have different works that aren't works of Christ. They're not works that God has ordained before the foundation of the world. And there are works that are in keeping not with those who have wedding clothes on, but those who have no wedding clothes who aren't part of the wedding and the, and the feast. Yeah, yeah, Aaron. Yeah, at the risk of going further on, because you know, this is wonderful. And I just what Christy said made me think of something. I know it's in the Bible somewhere, <laughs> okay? Yeah. It's in the Old Testament, and maybe you will know. Someone here might know. Uh, there, there's a verse somewhere about, you know, that... Uh, that when man, you know, comes up with his own, you know, if it's if it's of man, it it produces nothing but evil, sure. but if it's of God, it produces good. There's yeah. something, and I, I apologize. I just, uh, I think a few weeks ago in our Sunday school, yeah. that that verse came up. Mm. What, what is it? Yeah, I I just don't know. Do, do you know what I'm talking about, though? I, I, yeah. I think there's a biblical principle that sure. that when man comes up with his own devices, yeah, he doesn't do a good job. I yeah, mean, he, he doesn't do what fail. God wants. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And yet, God's word never fails. We see that in Isaiah 55. He's his thinking about it. Pro- I'm yeah. sorry. What? Uh, God's word will always produce what He desires it to. He never fails. Isaiah 55. His word goes out and accomplishes. Yeah, but man fails. And, and by the way, that's why God is the only promise keeper. Um, we, we may make promises. We may say, I'm going to do this or that. But at the end of the day, it's God alone who brings about exactly what he promises. Yeah, does, Judy, do you have something? Oh, no, she's just looking for a place to sit probably. Okay, well, I'll keep moving on here. No, that's good. Um, let's see. Oh, one other passage I want to just deal with is that Galatians 3.27. Now, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but in Galatians 3.27, let me read it to you, and I'm going to link this to this being clothed with our wedding clothes on. Galatians 3.27, Paul said, For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Okay? Now, when we are baptized, we were clothed with Christ. Does that mean that baptism saves? No. You and I were actually baptized the moment, or excuse me, clothed the moment that we believed. But baptism is a symbol of that salvation that we have. Okay, so baptism is the symbol that we are clothed with Christ. We're with him. So remember, let's go back to Noah's family. Those who were with Noah are identified with him. They're brought through the flood waters, death to the old world. That's flooded and destroyed. They're brought to the new. There's identity with Noah. Only he and his family were saved. Go to Israel, hundreds and hundreds of years later. They're baptized through the Red Sea with Moses. And the rest of the Egyptian army is flooded and they're destroyed. Now, those who are with Moses, they're on the way to the promised land. They can't go back to Egypt. Why? The floodwaters, as it were, covered it back. Just as Noah couldn't go back to the old world, Israel can't go back to the old world 
Well, when you and I are baptized with Christ, the symbol is that you and I are with him. The old world is destroyed. It's behind us. We're on the way to the promised land as well. Okay, so that's what baptism symbolizes. It symbolizes an inward reality that you have through faith, that you are clothed with him, you are identified with him. So when God sees us, he sees the righteousness of his son. When he sees us, he sees the atonement that his son provided. So that's what baptism symbolizes. We're with him. The primary symbolism of baptism is identity. Why does Jesus, why is he baptized? To identify with the people of God. He's the faithful Israel that Israel never was. He goes into the wilderness for 40 days. He succeeds. He identifies with us. He's not baptized for the remission of sins. He's baptized to identify with us. We are baptized to identify with him. He is our God and we are his people. He's bringing us to the promised land. There's no going back to Egypt. And so that's what baptism symbolizes. Every day of your life, when you consider sin, you can say, hey, I'm with Christ. There's no going back to Egypt. I'm on the way to the promised land. I'm clothed with Christ. Yeah, so that's what the imagery is all about. So all of this is tied in to identity with Jesus. Yeah, amen. Okay, I'm sorry. We got another. I was just listening to one of Bob's old tapes. Oh, yeah. And um, the, the ones who did not believe, like Pharaoh and his um, caravan that came after. Yeah, right. The Israelites, his army. They, yeah. They were they perished, right? And Noah believed, and his family, and were saved. And the world that did not believe, they were destroyed. Exactly right. So and that well kind said. of um, confirms believers' baptism. Exactly right. Great point. So you're accentuating the fact that it was the believers who were baptized, who believed the promises of God. It was Noah who believed. Absolutely right. And by the way, he's taken out before the wrath comes, right? Um, you have the Israelites. They're the believers. Moses believes the promises of God. They slay the blood of the lamb. They, remember, they take the blood of the lamb, they put on the doorpost of their home, and they're passed over from the wrath of God. And then they're baptized. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's believers only that are to be baptized. Well said. Good connection. Good reading. Free coffee. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll keep moving on. Let me keep reading here for the sake of time. Hopefully we can get through the last two slides here today. Now, the, the other thing I want to point out is notice here in verse 9. Notice it says, Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, I want to stop there for just a moment. Notice the phrase. Do I have a box for that? Oh, I do. Then he said to me. Does everyone see that phrase? Now, Craig, you have Revelation seventeen fifteen, And um, Eric, if you could just bring the mic to Craig. Amundsen, he's going to read Revelation 17, 15. So please turn your Bibles there. Now, the reason I'm having you turn there is this phrase, then he said to me, connects back to Revelation 17, 15, where we had the beginning of this whole narrative about Babylon. And I'm just making this connection so you can see everything from Revelation 17, 15 all the way through now is kind of a continuous unit about the destruction of Babylon through the coming of the sun. Yeah. Revelation seventeen fifteen. Then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Yeah, and I'm sorry, keep reading all the way to verse eighteen. And then ten horn and the ten horns which you saw on the head 
on the beast. These will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Yeah, so that great city, which is, of course, Babylon, is ultimately being thrown down by Christ. And so the culmination of that is this battle of Armageddon, in which we're now looking at in Revelation 19, Jesus is returning. So I want you to see from Revelation 17, 15, all the way to now, we have an entire unit. Now, the other thing I want to point out, notice what he asked him to write. He says, write... Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Dear ones, all believers in Jesus Christ are blessed. Why? Because we have eternal life. We have a partaking in the future kingdom in this great messianic banquet that is to come. Now, here's why it's important to understand that blessed is a condition that you have by nature of being a believer in Christ and not a feeling. There are days that you're going to get out of bed where you're going to have bad days. You're not going to feel good. You're going to have a broken body. Something won't be functioning right. You're going to have problems with your family, etc., etc. But despite those circumstances, what the scriptures declare to you is that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're blessed. Meaning, ultimately, you're going to have forgiveness of sins. You do have forgiveness of sins. You're going to have everlasting life. You are going to be in a state of bliss as you're going to be with your God in glory. That is true of you, no matter what your circumstances are. Now, this is why it's so important that we don't take away the Lord's Supper from people. Let me explain. When you and I participate in the Lord's Supper, it is a foreshadowing, a rehearsal dinner for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Jesus Christ, because he purchases his people by his blood, he gets to determine who is on the invite list, who has the wedding clothes on. And so the guests that Jesus invites, men and women who are believers, and it's only for believers, if anyone would exclude them from the Lord's Supper, they're really being excluded from the rehearsal dinner. The rehearsal dinner is that point to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay. Now, the reason I'm pointing that out is Bob and I have both witnessed in our ministries together where you will, you will hear of people who are excluded wrongly from the Lord's Supper. And it usually happens from a misunderstanding of what the warnings were about in 1 Corinthians 11. Okay, So I want to turn to that, and I want to just hit on that a little bit because I want you to see how important it is that every single believer that's been purchased by the blood of Christ is, in fact, included in the Lord's Supper. So please turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 34. In fact, I've got to do the same because I don't have this written down. And I know, Ryan, you had that passage. Is that correct? Ryan is going to read this to us. And Ryan, if you don't mind, I might have you pause at certain points because we'll just talk about how these um, different terms have to be interpreted correctly. So I'm sorry, here we are. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. So start reading there and just go verse by verse here. So start in verse 27 and just read that verse first. Whoever, and, I'm sorry before, sorry, before you begin, remember, at verse 26, Paul has instituted the Lord's Supper. So he just reiterates the Lord's Supper. So you've just seen the Lord's Supper. As often as you eat the bread, you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
So that's verse 26. Now Ryan's reading verse 27. All right, starting in 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks a cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Good, perfect. Okay, so here's the issue. How do you eat and drink in an unworthy manner? Well, many people throughout church history have wrongly assumed that what they have to do is look past or look back the, next, the past week or past month, however long it has been since they've had the Lord's Supper previously. And if they are somehow too sinful, then they have to exclude themselves from the Lord's Supper. Or perhaps uh, to eat or drink in an unworthy manner means that they have some sin in their life that they can't um, get rid of or something. So they look at the idea of, well, I can't partake of the Lord's Supper because I'm not good enough. That's typically how this is understood. So what happens then is you have clergy who will look at different individuals and they will say, yeah, that individual isn't good enough, that individual isn't good enough, and people start being excluded based on supposed human merit. Okay, but what we're going to do is we're going to see that that is now what the warning is about, as you will see. Keep reading. I'm sorry. Let's go to verse 28. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Okay, so stop there. So we have to examine ourselves. Now, what are we examining? What you're going to see is Paul wants us to examine ourselves so that we would rightly discern what the body is, the body of Christ. Now, the body of Christ is not the physical body of Christ that was crucified, but rather the corporate body of Christ, meaning all believers. That's what we're going to see. So this examine yourself is exceedingly important. It doesn't mean that you say, you know what, I wonder if I've been good enough the last month. None of you were. If only those who were good enough could participate in the Lord's Supper, you'd have two groups. You'd have those who were honest and they would never partake in the Lord's Supper. And then you'd have the rest of us lying hypocrites who thought we were, we'd be participants of the Lord's Supper. Okay? So examine yourself does not mean you see if you're good enough for the Lord's table. Okay? So keep reading, Ryan. So in verse 29 then, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Okay, so stop there. It's critical that you understand that the body here is not discerning the physical body of Christ. What would it mean to discern the physical body of Christ? How do you discern that? Well, you can't, but we can discern who people, the people who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, and so what was going on at Corinth is you had wealthy Christians who are excluding poor Christians from the table. In fact, the poor Christians were relegated to a place called the atrium, and they were placed in a place where no one would see them who were wealthy Christians. The wealthy Christians would recline in what's called the triclinium, and they would be excluding these poor Christians, and they would have their own dinner. So all of a sudden, the dinner that the wealthy Christians were having wasn't the Lord's Supper, because you had a division in the body. Some are being excluded. That's why Paul was concerned about the body of Christ, that anyone who's a believer in Jesus Christ has a right to the table. Why? Because they were purchased by the blood of the Lamb. And again, this, this Lord's Supper is a foreshadowing and a rehearsal dinner for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay, so keep reading, Ryan. Verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Yeah, so there's been judgment. Now stop there for just a moment. Some people will say, well, look, there's judgment and wrath of God in the new covenant. Certainly God does pour out wrath during the new covenant. Here's the issue. Who's telling us that some have died because they have abused the flock? 
Well, we have an apostle. Do we have any modern-day apostles or prophets on the, scenes to, on the scene today? No. So if anyone dies today, we can't say, well, it's because they were abusing the flock or because they were doing this sin or that sin because we have no authoritative prophet or apostle on the scene to tell us that. But here, we had revelation from God through the apostle Paul that that indeed was occurring. So I'm sorry, Ryan, keep going. Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Then keep going. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Yeah, and then keep reading into verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Okay, so stop there. Notice he says, so then, my brothers, here's Paul's inference. Here's his conclusion. How are you to rightly discern the body? How are you to rightly examine yourself before the Lord's Supper? Well, he says, wait for one another. And that seems somewhat anticlimactic, but that's Paul's point. Why? Because he wants the entire body to be together. He doesn't want some Christians being excluded. That's the point. Why? Because this is a rehearsal dinner for the marriage supper of the Lamb, and every single believer is going to be a participant in it. If Jesus chose a person and shed his blood for them, then he gets to determine that they're at his table, and no one else can decide that they cannot be. Now, there are times when people should be excluded from the Lord's Supper, but they should also be excluded from the assembly of the church, and that's church discipline. And Jesus Christ himself lays out the procedures for that, for example, in Matthew 18. Okay? So those who are under church discipline, they're not even going to be participants in the assembly, let alone the Lord's Supper. Okay? So it doesn't mean that we just tolerate sin in the church, but that there's a process for that. But otherwise, if somebody isn't under church discipline, they're to be a, a participant in the Lord's Supper. Dear ones, I want to just focus on that for, the, for this brief time because I want you to see the relationship between that and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Every single believer, everyone in here is a believer in Jesus is going to be at that marriage supper. And every time you eat of the bread and you drink the cup, it's a rehearsal dinner. Rehearsal dinner. We're rehearsing and rehearsing. So when Jesus Christ comes, we're going to get it right. <laughs> no, I don't think we can goof up the dinner. But the point is it's foreshadowing that. That's the grand point. I'm sorry, Norm, you had a, a comment or question. So, so clearly no believers are to be excluded. But what do we say about people that clearly are not believers, but they come and they want to participate in the Lord's Supper? Just, you know, no understanding. They just want to go ahead and do what everybody else is doing. What, what do we feel about that? Yeah, you know what? Um, I'm kind of in the mindset of allow them to come. Um, and here, here's the point is... You know, when Jesus dines, he dines with sinners. And here's the point is what I would say when we say this all the time from the pulpit, this is for believers. But perhaps at that moment, someone's coming to faith. And if someone believes in Jesus Christ, they're welcome to the supper. Are you with me? The eating and drinking judgment upon themselves was reserved for those who knowingly were excluding Christians from table fellowship. So, I don't think we're incurring judgment upon ourselves by saying, hey, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're welcome to this table. And by the way, we're going to have to have a quiz to determine who really is a believer, who's not. That's not incumbent upon us. Maybe someone that day that we're having the Lord's Supper, 
feels compelled to come to the Lord's table for the forgiveness of sins. We shouldn't exclude them, I don't think. Um, Bob, you have some insight on this. And t- tell a little bit of people about the controversy that occurred with Jonathan Edwards' yeah, church. I was just about that. about that. Yeah, yep. Listen uh, to this. is good. I'm hoping to remember who was on what side. It was between him and his, the church that was founded by his grandfather. His grandfather, yeah. And well, I think it was Ed- Edwards. Somebody said the Lord's Supper is a converting ordinance. Yeah. Okay. And therefore, you don't exclude people thinking maybe they're not converted, so they're excluded. Because to know that, we'd have to know the heart. Which we can't Which know. only God does. Right. And, it's, and the idea was, if you come, you may come to faith thinking about what God did. Now, the reason this becomes a problem in church history is because of creedalism. Certain denominations created creeds that they demand everybody sign blindly onto. And if you disagree with the creed, you're not a part of this. Right. But if you do sign onto the creed, then you're part of us and you're welcome, even if you don't have any faith. So they had people that were there because of their creed and their parochial concerns and their history that probably were never converted. Right. That's why it came up. But we're not saying we have some certain creed that you have to sign or you can't be a Christian. Right. Now, most of you probably know that a creed doesn't change the heart. Right, right. Okay. So we explain who the Lord is, what he did, what the gospel is. Eric is explained as rehearsal, the clothing, the righteousness of Christ, the blood atonement. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom the Father sent, and all of that. Given that, if somebody's willing to come, they should be welcome, in my opinion. Amen. Because we have imperfect understanding of assurance. Assurance comes in degrees. Yeah. yeah. Okay? And if we start doing a lot of introspection, pretty soon none of us would would ever want to go up there. Yeah, absolutely. Is that right? (laughs) Amen. But we're looking to the objective what did God do? What is the universal call of the gospel? Do I believe in Christ? Am I trusting him or am I trusting myself? And if that is right, we should go to the Lord's Supper. Amen. Brian has something here, too. Yeah. Eric, would you comment yeah. on you can be under church discipline, you cannot take communion, yet still wear the wedding clothes? Yeah. Yeah, let me explain that. So... <clears throat> Um, we, Bob and I, you've heard us talk about the means of grace quite often. And remember those four means that we see are in Acts 2.42. It's the assembling together, which we're doing today at church. It's the Lord's Supper. It's the apostles' teaching, which is the word of God. And it's the breaking of bread. It's or I did, or, I'm prayer. I already did the Lord's Supper. It's prayer. Those four things. But I would add two other elements that we don't devote ourselves to, but they're, they're things that we do. The other means, think about burger. You got the, the main burger are the four means of grace, Acts 2.42. But then you have two buns. The bottom bun, I would say, is your baptism. Now, notice the early church in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the means of grace, those four things. They didn't devote themselves to baptism. Why? Because you only baptized once in keeping with the type. Uh, Noah wasn't baptized multiple times through the floodwaters. Israel wasn't baptized multiple times, etc. So we're only baptized once. So you're not going to keep doing that. Well, there's a top bun to the burger, and think of that 
as being church discipline. Now, we don't devote ourselves to church discipline. I know some saints who try to do that seemingly, but we shouldn't devote ourselves to church discipline. Am I right? Church discipline is a means by which God takes people who genuinely have a desire to be in the assembly and says, because you will not repent of this sin, you're claiming to be the Lord in this fellowship, you're going to be excluded until you repent. Now, true believers will acquiesce to that, to that means of grace, to that discipline. They will say, I can't stop or stand not being in the assembly. I'm going to repent of this sin and come back to the Lord. And so the Lord will use that to bring true, genuine believers back into the fold. So the question is, if someone remains under church discipline, the implication is that they don't want to be one who repents. Therefore, they really don't have faith. And therefore, they have excluded themselves by their own demonstration, not only from the Lord's Supper, but from the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's demonstrating that they're really not believers. They went out from us because they were really never of us. Exactly. So, But in, at any time, someone under church discipline can repent, and that demonstrates, yes, they really do have saving faith, and therefore they really are part of the marriage supper of the Lamb. So good question, Brian. Yeah, but I hope that makes sense. Okay, yeah, Eric. Or Luann. Well, I just wanted to, you know, I just really like when these kind of topics come up because we had this exact conversation at Easter. We had a C&E family member go to a creedal church last okay. Easter. Yep. And so at dinner, we were talking about that. And, you know, they're looking for flaws in our armor and chinks, you know. And when they were at the creedal church, they were having communion and this individual said you know what's the deal that they're telling people who can and cannot take communion because they were telling us that we couldn't go Mm. and so it ended up being quite a discussion and we were you know kind of recalling you having spoken on this before right but um they because this individual also had said you know you can be pretty sure when the offering came around they were my money was going to be good enough (laughs) you know so they are watching and listening luann very good very good yeah some denominations and and bob you want to hit this too some denominations believe what they call fencing the table and so what they do is because of their misunderstanding of the first corinthians 11 passage they believe that rightly discerning the body and examining yourself and all of these things that are discussed by Paul have to do with people not being under sin. And therefore, anyone who doesn't acquiesce to their creeds or they believe isn't, uh, you know, holy enough, they will exclude from the table lest they bring judgment upon them. That's what they fear. But um, one way of disproving that is, remember, Ryan just read to us, everyone look again at verse 33. What is Paul's inference after he gives the warnings? Notice he doesn't say, so then, my brothers, make sure that you're holy enough or make sure that there's no sin in you. Uh, Make sure that no one attends who may have had some sin in the past month. He says, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Why? Because you had some Christians who were excluding others. That's his remedy. So how does that remedy that Paul gives, Paul's the one who's inspired by the Spirit, not some creed, not some pastor who's distorting this passage. It's Paul. So how does that line up with what Paul said when someone says you can't have access to the table because you won't sign on to our creed, etc.? So that's a great way of refuting that, Luann. And Bob, you probably have something to add to this. Well, I've had this discussion, and it comes up in seminary, and depending on what denomination people are in, 
Some people believe not discerning the body means you don't realize that the bread and wine are really the body of Christ. Transubstantiation. But that's not what's being taught here. Exactly. And in other cases, people who obviously are not Christians are included because they signed the creed. And people who have signs of regeneration and confess Christ are excluded because they didn't sign the creed. Right. And the first pastor that I worked with in the early 80s told a story. He went through a Lutheran seminary before he was actually converted. But maybe he was while he was there. I can't remember the timing. Yeah. But they had this big pomp and circumstance ordination where they really graduated, they got their degrees, and they had to swear that they believed the, these Christian truths. Yeah. And they came back to take their gowns and stuff off, and he was with them. And they were saying, well, that was a bunch of malarkey. They, <laughs> the guys being ordained to be pastors did not believe that God actually raised Christ from the dead oh. or any of it. They didn't believe any of it. Wow. But they wanted to have status in their denomination. So here we have people in the pulpit who are unconverted, who don't believe in the resurrection, don't believe in the blood atonement, but they love their denomination, excluding true believers from the Lord's table. How ironic. Because they didn't sign the creed. When they signed it, they didn't believe it anyhow. Right, right. And you've heard my story, three different... uh, Now, we weren't in a closed type of a creedal church, but the ordained ministers, when I was a teenager, did not believe in miracles, did not believe in the resurrection, and believed yeah. the Bible was full of myths. The old Rudolf Bultmann demythologizing yeah. the Bible. So, dear saints, what makes us suitable? Thank you, Eric. This is yeah. absolutely what we need to hear. Is what God did for us. Amen. Amen. Not how many rich friends we had not how many traditions we held to, not what denomination we belong to, but it's what God did for us by his grace. If it proves anything, it proves that we're just unworthy sinners who found great grace from God. I'm going to preach about to the praise of his glory. Well, how do we know who's the elect? Well, we we can't look ahead of time and know. But if there's anything we know, Paul said... Consider your own calling, my brothers. What did he say? Yeah. Not many wise going to the world, not many rich. Basically, if there's anything we can learn just from looking around, is that probably God saved us. We don't have anything going for us. Hmm. In spite of ourselves. I'll talk about Mary (laughs) when the angel talked to her. But in our case, the reality is nobody has anything going for them. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. you, you can be the richest guy in the world. You can own Facebook or whatever yeah. and have billions. <laughs> but if you don't confess Christ, you don't have anything going for you. So the mercy of God is that we know we don't have anything going for Amen. us. Amen. Thank Amen. you, Lord. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, I'm sorry, LeVon. Uh, I'm just thinking of when we go, when we go to um, funerals for Roman Catholics. Yeah. We, I feel we absolutely should not participate in theirs because it's, it's a sacrifice. They I are agree. denying what Christ yeah. Amen. did. Well, and well said. We should not participate in anything like that. Exactly, Yvonne. And, you know, getting back to what Bob said, what's interesting is when they talk about discerning the body, you know what they think of is they think of transubstantiation, that doctrine where the elements actually turn into the body and blood of Christ. That's how they're thinking. Well, 
That's not the body that Paul is obviously referring to. Why does he say wait for one another? He's talking about the corporate body of Christ. So they're not concerned about exegesis. Their exegesis is the Pope. The Pope has already decided these things in their college of bishops, and therefore they're going on their tradition rather than what the scriptures actually say. So well said. Now, um, I want to, you know, it's so funny as I planned on, I actually had another PowerPoint together uh, to get into. So, but let's just try to finish this one up. Oh, I'm sorry, Dan. I just was wondering about the, um, I think it's in numbers where the willful sin of people. Oh, yeah, how the high hand. You know, the people that know let's just say they know what the scriptures say about a certain thing. Let's just say homosexuality, for yes. instance. And then the church, you know, somehow they, they have this blessing. They think it's, it's okay. And then, but yet they still know that it's wrong, yeah. but yet they, because their church leadership says it's okay. Um, good connection. Good connection. Very good. So let's, let's talk about sinning with a high hand. Um, in, in the old covenant, you would, you'd hear this terminology, someone who was sinning with a high hand, there was no atonement for them. Now, here's why. It wasn't that God was unable to forgive them. The issue was they were claiming to be their own God. They were claiming the right to sin. Now, this translates directly to the new covenant. People who are under church discipline, who won't repent, are claiming the right to sin. They're sinning with a high hand. So what they're saying is we're the covenant uh, lawgiver rather than Christ. So those who will not repent under church discipline are identical to those who are sinning with a high hand, and that's why they're excluded from the fellowship. Now, if they repent, and they say, I don't know what I was thinking. That was wrong. That was evil. I'm turning from that. Yes, then they're welcomed back into the fellowship. But that's the connection there to the Lord's Supper. Those, yeah. The problem is the fellowship. Exactly, and then you have a fellowship of the damned. Yeah, I mean, that's what you have. You don't have a church. You have just the fellowship of the damned. Yeah. It really yeah. comes down to who speaks for God. Exactly. I've been editing those Hebrews ones that we did. Under yeah, Israel, yeah. And we had to go through all those passages about apostles to see the high hand where people said, why should we have to listen to Moses? Right. Can't we be the ones? Who speak for God, yeah. can't we? Or how about the mystics in our day? Right. We're going to go into the tent of meeting. Right, like Moses. We, we had a con- conference yeah. here where I quoted a famous evangelical lady claiming she has her own tent of meeting. Right. And God talks to her like she's Christ and the apostles. Right. That's a high hand. Yeah, amen. We're saying, no, Moses doesn't speak for God. Who are these guys? The Baihu and... Well, yeah, yeah, Nadab and Abihu, yeah. right. How did it turn out for them? They died. <laughs> Not so good. <laughs> yeah. Now, one thing I want to leave off uh, all of us with is, again, notice it says, blessed are those who have this partaking in the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? Well, we're blessed. Why? Because we're not under the wrath of God. We have his salvation. So at this final battle, Christ is going to demolish his enemies. They will be feasted upon. We're going to look at this next time while you and I are going to be feeding with the king. And so there's this great reversal. Now, the reason I want to talk about this idea of reversal regarding the marriage supper of the lamb, this feast, is because uh, there's a concept in the Old Testament called mishta. Now, mishta is a banquet. And oftentimes through these banquets throughout the Old and the New Testament, you see reversals happen. Bob, um, you wrote a whole article about this called Dining with the King. Um, I don't remember what issue, but if you put in Critical Issues Commentary, Dining with the King, it's actually my favorite. If I were to choose a favorite article of all of them, it's very difficult. But that's my favorite, Dining with the King. 
please look that up and read it. But it explains throughout the Old Testament how you would have banquets and there would be a reversal. Some would be damned and some would be saved. Um, I have a list of them here that Bob had in his article. Genesis 19, you have, remember, Lot has a banquet and you have he and his family are saved, but what happens to the rest of Sodom and Gomorrah? There ends up being judgment. Uh, two chapters later, Genesis 21, Abraham has a banquet. Remember Sarah's son, who is the son of blessing? God gave him the blessing. Isaac, he's blessed and given the promise. What happens to Hagar? Her son, Ishmael, he's cast away. So there's a reversal. He was the one who was having all of the good fortune, but he's cast away while the son of blessing is blessed. Genesis 40 at Pharaoh's banquet. Remember at Pharaoh's banquet, you have the cupbearer who ends up being exalted where you have the baker who ends up being hanged just as Joseph had prophesied. There's a judgment and there's a salvation. Fast forward to 1 Samuel 25, Nabal. Remember it means fool in Hebrew. He has a banquet. He ends up being the one who's hung while David, who he was trying to curse, ends up being blessed by even being given Abigail. Uh, Think about when the Jews are saved in the book of Esther. This is what Dana did such a wonderful job teaching about. Remember at a banquet, you have Mordecai the Jew ends up being exalted and saved, where Haman, who's trying to wipe out the people of God, he ends up being hung. There's reversal, 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 always at a mishta, always at a banquet, always at a wedding feast type of event. And all of a sudden you get to the final wedding feast and there's a great reversal. You and I are being crushed by the world. We're being ridiculed, mocked, spit upon, murdered. And all of a sudden, Christ comes, and we're going to be saved. And we're going to dine with the king, while the enemies of the king aren't going to be dining. They'll be feasted upon by the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. The greatest reversal ever. Brothers and sisters, that's what the marriage supper of the Lamb is about. And every time you partake of the cup and you eat of the bread, you're rehearsing that day. You're rehearsing it. Every time we're taking the, the, and participating in the Lord's Supper, it's a rehearsal day for this wonderful reversal that will occur at the end of history. Brothers and sisters, that is exciting. Let's, let's, for the sake of time, let's bow our heads in prayer and leave on that note. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the great promises that you have that your son will break through the clouds. He'll take us home. He'll pour out his wrath upon his enemies and he will come and set up a kingdom that's preceded by this great marriage supper of the Lamb. I thank you, Lord, that through faith in Christ we can be participants of this great supper, that all by your grace we can feast with you forever while our enemies are judged. I pray that if anyone in here does not know Christ, that today would be their day to repent and trust upon him so that their sins can be forgiven that they will have everlasting life and that they will be enrolled at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.